Good day, dear listeners. Steve Breda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And today's guest here is Chris De Jong, a former U.S. national swimmer and the founder and president of Big Blue Swim School, a fast-growing swim school franchise that combines world-class swim instruction with an unbeatably easy experience for the entire family. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Uh, it's exciting to have you. And uh, listen, I'm, I'm always uh, very impressed by athletes when they turn into uh, successful business people. So how does that even happen? How, how does from uh, being a U.S. national swimmer, someone becomes an entrepreneur? It seems like an unlikely transition. That's fair. Yeah, I was uh, a swimmer my whole life. You know, I grew up swimming. I uh, grew up in Michigan. My dad sold boats at the local marina. My mom taught swim lessons. and. So I was just kind of always in the water and or on the water, and it's just a part of who I am. Uh, so I slowly got into uh, competitive swimming as a kid after a couple of false starts, not really liking it at first, but then um, starting to like it as I got older. And that just started to develop more and more into a more serious commitment as a competitive swimmer. I went on to swim through high school and through college, and then um, even for a while professionally post-college. Yeah, as you mentioned, I was on the U.S. national swim team for about nine years and um, wow. just missed the U.S. Olympic swim team in 2004 and then again in 2008. Um, and after that, I kind of knew my competitive swimming career was done and I really was not sure what I was going to do with my life after that. So I just started, started teaching swim lessons as a way to make ends meet at first. Uh, and at the time, I wasn't exactly in love with the sport of swimming anymore. I was about 24, 25. But by starting to teach kids how to swim and sharing, you know, my passion for just being in the water and swimming, it kind of breathed life back into me. And I quickly realized that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Uh, and so one way or the other, I know I'm always going to be involved with swimming or near the water of some sort. And this was just the perfect way for me to build a career out of what was my passion. And uh, it's, a, it's really a pretty cool, magical experience to watch a kid learn to swim. And uh, I'm proud to say now we get to do that every day. And we've done it with well over a million swim lessons at this point. Wow. Okay. Wow. This, this is really, this, you are really making a difference then with that. And, and I agree with you. It's, it's a huge experience for a kid. When I was a kid, when I first started being able to stay on top of the water and, and it kind of gives you the freedom of, of, uh, of floating in this, uh, in this substance, it's, it's really, really cool. And, you know, it's, it's really cool that you made this pivot and found something else where you can strive for an Olympic uh, gold type of experience. Building a big business is kind of uh, winning the Olympics. And then you stay there, right? It's not just for four years, but you can you can stay on top for a long time. Sure. So, so this is really really cool. So, switching gears a little bit here, you know that the theme of this podcast is the management blueprint and business frameworks. So, I wonder what you I mean, you you seem to have uh, had a very intentional approach to building your business. What kind of frameworks have you come across that you found useful and, and implemented partially or fully in your business? Yeah, that's a great question. I've had a, a multitude of different influences on me over the years. 
if I had to narrow it down, I'd say uh, a couple different business books, as well as some mentors and some different uh, even consultants I've spoken with. But uh, one book that sticks out is uh, called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And that talks a lot about how you, you really need to be ruthless with your time and, and shave away the things that don't really matter is thinking about your day in, day out routine as a business leader, you really have only a few core responsibilities and you need to focus your time on those. Those are really the essential functions of being a leader. And as a leader of a business, that really comes down to hiring the team and then making sure you don't run out of money really at the end of the day. So obviously a lot more responsibilities come up after that, but when hiring the team, that also means keeping the team, making sure that they feel uh, motivated and engaged and happy and that they have uh, the right structure around them to go succeed. You know, if you're not focusing your time and energy into those really core essential responsibilities as a business leader, I think you're, you're going to fail pretty quickly because it's, it's pretty easy to go down rabbit holes and to get stuck in some of the minutia of uh, day in and day out responsibilities, but you've got to pull yourself up and gain the perspective because if you don't, no one really else will in the business. And so you, you need to have that peripheral perspective at times to see what all is happening so that you can most effectively use your very limited time and resources to, to help the business. So in that regard, the essential functions of a business leader in my mind really do boil down to those two things of just managing your cash and hiring the team. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to hiring the team, like I said, you also have to make sure that they're engaged and motivated. Another book that's been influential for me is a book called It's Your Ship by Michael Ebershoff. And that is a book about, well, he's, he's a captain in the Navy. And it's about how he took one of the lowest performing ships in the Pacific Fleet and turned it into the highest performing ship. Uh, and how he did that is it's really a pretty miraculous journey and a lot of it comes back to giving people ownership. Mm -hmm. He talks about an interview he had with one of the members of the crew that was set to leave the Navy. And he asked him, why are you leaving? And his response was, well, no one's ever asked me to stay. And so that's when he realized that it's really not, a, it's not very complicated. It's just about doing the simple things exceptionally well. And so... He then turned that ship around by uh, engaging with people and through a core, a couple of core responsibilities. He talks about providing purpose for your employees, uh, listening aggressively, making sure that they really feel heard, and then communicating back to them. And he calls it communicate, communicate, communicate. Uh, they need to know what's happening and you need to see the ship, or in this case, your business, through the eyes of your crew. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, what that means, and one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received is that as a business leader, you need to have a flexible vision. So obviously you need to create the vision. You need to share the vision. But if you're going to give people ownership and really good people are going to want some ownership over the direction of the, of the ship or the business, they need to feel like they can hang their hat on and, and direct the business in a way that they feel it should go. And so as the founder of Big Blue Swim School, what I've found is that if I really want to go far, uh, I need an amazing team around me 
And that means the vision that I maybe had at the very beginning needs to be, it needs to remain very flexible. And if Mm. it's unbending, then great people are just not going to want to work here. And you really do want to be able to say that great people are lining up to want to work with you and they're lining up to want to work at your business. Yeah. I I like, I love this idea and it's not an easy thing to do. I don't think entrepreneurs like to have their way and uh, you know, and also entrepreneurs also like to kind of pivot in real time and going after this shiny object, whatever excites them in the moment. It's kind of part of the, the perk of the perceived perks of being an entrepreneur. Sure. But if you do that, then you are going to demotivate your team, not just because of the pivots, but also if they, they don't, uh, if they can't be in on the vision, if they can't contribute to it, then they're not going to feel ownership, as you say, and they're going to go and, to, you know, fulfill their potential elsewhere. And that's the biggest loss that you can have, because this is exactly the kind of people you want to keep that has have the potential and the vision. They've got this entrepreneurial energy and they can keep them in the organization by allowing them to contribute. That is a huge uh, bloom. The other thing I'd like to reflect is essentialism that you uh, talked about, which is so true. And, you know, few people realize that decisions, making decisions all about saying no to things is cutting off uh, decision is cutting things off. And Mm -hmm. it's it's a very painful process because you, you, all the time you have to, hold yourself back from doing this and that the other and just limiting your involvement and uh, i recently read uh, a book from uh, from jeff bezos and he talks about even the number of decisions you have to limit that because as a you know a ceo of a, of a company you don't have to make 25 decisions you just have to make three or four really good decisions every day and your work is done and how do you make those decisions and how do you keep yourself in the best possible mental frame so you can do those. It's really, really critical. Yeah, you look at a guy like Jeff Bezos and just how incredibly productive they are and how, how ruthless he has to be with the efficiency of his time. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really pretty incredible to, to, to think about managing an organization of that size. You, you have to get really good at asking the right questions and, and providing the right framework to be able to ask those questions. Uh, another piece that's been really influential on me was an article I read in the Harvard Business Review called, uh, When Should a Process Be an Art, Not a Science? It's written by two guys, Joseph Hall and Eric Johnson. And they talk about different processes and systems in the book. You have mass processes where everything needs to turn out exactly the same, like production of a car. And then another process they talk about is called mass customization. And a third process is called craft systems. Mass customization being, you know, where you do the same process every time, but things come out a little bit different every time. And that's a good thing. Imagine like making a sandwich at a, at a sub shop and it's a little different every time. And the, the customer accepts that and actually embraces it. But then there's also a process called craft systems where, you know, you can't necessarily make a formula for how people to people interactions are going to work. And in our business in Big Blue Swim School, there's a lot of person-to-person interactions. So in a craft system, we do a lot of training on how you're going to engage with a customer in an organic, fluid manner, but still produces very consistent, positive results. 
And so knowing as a leader when to use a mass process, mass customization, or craft system is really the, the real challenge. And they also talk about a fourth system, which is a broken system. And, and this is where I try to really be efficient with my time is how to diagnose the broken system. And it really comes down to, to three core questions in my mind is you either have a systems problem, a management problem, or a training problem. Pretty much everything comes back to those three things, right? And if you ask yourself, is there a process in place that can be followed? And the answer is no. Well, then you clearly have a systems problem. But oftentimes that's not the case. So if you ask yourself, is there a system in place that can be followed but is not being followed? And the answer to that is yes. Then you probably have a management problem and you need to dive into fi fixing that issue. And the third question would be, is there a system but employees don't know how to use it? In that case, if the answer is yes, then you probably have a training problem. And so if you put all the issues that come to you through that lens, that filter, you could be much more efficient with your time because oftentimes, I can't tell you how many times, people come to me with something they've noticed that they think is a, is a big systems issue and we need to create a whole new process. And I say, wait a second, let's really kind of dive in here and understand things. And oftentimes it, it is a management or training problem. But had we tried to go fix a whole new system, it would have been a really inefficient use of everyone's time, including my own. Uh, so when you can more properly diagnose problems by asking the right questions, which is something I continue to try to get better at every day, then you can get more and more efficient and get back to the whole idea of just being able to execute the essential tasks as a business leader. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I agree with you. This, uh, this is basically the Socratic method of asking questions and letting the people who are the closest to the problem to figure it out. Sometimes they are too close to it. That's true. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, you can help them or brainstorm with other people who see it from different perspective. But, but definitely uh, having them figure it out and own it, own the solution, they're going to be much more motivated to fix it. And they're going to learn in the process to, to fix their own problems. So they're not going to bring next time to you. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, I like your framework of looking at systems, the problem, whether it's a system problem, management problem or a training program. You know, Gino Wickman in, in the entrepreneurial operating system, he talks about the follow by all uh, checklist, which is basically making sure that everyone, so you have, you defined, you documented your, your system or your process. You want to make, make sure that everyone who touches it is trained, that you measure um, the execution. Often you put it on a scorecard or a scoreboard, and then you manage the execution. And if it doesn't work, if it's broken, then fix the problem and then update the system and make sure that new people are trained. So there's kind of a, this, a cyclical uh, process of maintaining this, the system and not just putting it in the drawer and, right. um, and then um, you got yeah. it's a good, it's a rinse wash repeat system of diagnosing and fixing and that's really what the day comes down to a lot of times yeah that's that's really cool so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about big blue uh, swim school and what makes it special and one of the things that you mentioned to me in the pre-interview was that what you really pay attention is the, is the voice of the customer and advocating for the voice of the customer. So what do you mean exactly by the voice of the customer and, and advocating for it? What does it look like in, in the real world? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely listen very closely to the customer. We look at uh, reviews from customers, written reviews that come in to us every single morning, and we talk about it as a team. That's a really big part of what has steered the direction of the company. But I'd also say from the very beginning, just to, to throw one more book out there at you, uh, is another book called The Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey, who started Square along with Jack Dorsey. It's a great idea and it, and it talks about perfect problems and that at the time they were uniquely positioned to solve what you call the perfect problem because they were the ones to go solve it at the time with their square card readers. Yep. And he talks about how from the very beginning, what they were trying to do was solve a problem as opposed to offer a service or make a product. Mm-hmm. And I think from the very beginning of Big Blue Swim School, that's been a differentiator for us. You know, we, we didn't like any of the off-the-shelf software platforms out there, so we built our own platform, uh, software platform, which was basically like starting two companies at the same time. But we knew we needed to do that in order to better meet the needs of our customers. And so in my mind, we have not just been offering a swim lesson. We have been solving a problem for parents and making it easier and easier by creating more and more uh, frictionless experiences, not only in the pool, but also around the entire experience for mom and dad. So you think about just the process of scheduling a swim lesson. When I was a kid, that meant driving somewhere and getting in line and you know getting your, your kids signed up to Sign, you know, start swim lessons at the local park district. Today, we try to make that really simple by solving that problem for parents and making it easy to sign up online or sign up on your phone and schedule all three of your kids at the same time. Uh, so through technology innovation and, and other efficiencies, we have been solving a problem, a problem similar to what Jim talks about in the innovation stack. And it's a big reason why he believes Amazon eventually backed off trying to copy the uh, the square space, or the, the sorry the square card reader, because uh, they had such an innovation stack behind them of years and years of developing and solving problems that even Amazon backed off trying to to duplicate that, and so that's I think a big part of what we've done is, is building a moat by thinking about the customer first and mm-hmm. constantly listening to the customer. And if you're not doing that, you're not really understanding what their pain points are and you're not in a position to remove them. So from the very beginning and even to present day, we are constantly thinking about what are the problems facing our customer and our employees and how do we innovate and solve for problems? And that that's just a continuous cycle of improvement. Yeah, I love this concept of not trying to be a service or company or a product, but focus on the problem. How do we solve the problem and keep, uh, stay focused on that and the problem evolves and then your attention evolves with it. It's definitely a very powerful way of building a great product, which uh, which the customer wants. So how about, how about improving and, and evolving with the customer? How do you make sure that you continue to solve the problems and obviously you solve this problem and then there's going to be a higher level problem and then another one, another one. So do you have a process for identifying and kind of prioritizing and solving these ongoing new new problems or high level problems that keep uh, propping up? Yeah, you know, it's uh, 
we have a lot of people now weighing in on that. And, and we like to say none of us is smarter than all of us. So it, it's in some ways a very democratic process at this point. It's another reason why we've gone into franchising is to broaden our pool of people who are engaged in wanting to see the business improve. So leveraging the expertise of our franchise partners, as well as listening to our customers, you know, an ever growing corporate team, everyone has a say. And, and good ideas can come from anywhere. You know, the, the Big Mac was a franchisee's idea, right? Like some of the best ideas come from places that you may not expect. So we're always listening as broadly as we can, I would say. And then when it comes to how do you stack rank the list of ideas that come in, it's sometimes an art, sometimes a science. You know, if, if it's a really easy project to do and it's low-hanging fruit, then we, we go do that. And then we also stack rank the other uh, maybe longer tail projects, but we know that's going to have a great ROI. It's a balance between those two uh, of the, the short, easy projects. And then let's stack rank the, the longer, more intensive projects. And usually our, our quarterly goals are set with a combination of those two different types of projects. But we try to keep uh, the goalpost pretty, pretty broad and, and just focus in on a couple projects at a time. Because when we, if we try to be everywhere, we know we will land nowhere. And uh, just a couple of core projects that we know is going to have a huge impact on the customer experience has been our North Star from the beginning and continues to be today. So are you intentional about harvesting the ideas of your, your community? And now you have a franchise, you have franchisees, and yeah, you know, they are entrepreneurial people. They're going to come up with ideas. So what is there a process for capturing these ideas and prioritizing them or is it more of an organic thing that if someone is really passionate about it they're going to push it and eventually it's going to yeah. reach you and then uh, you're going to consider yeah. what is, is there a process yeah, so, so for example like with our um, with our business we teach swim lessons right so a core part of our product is the curriculum and the curriculum has been evolving since day one getting better and better and uh, great ideas on that come from everywhere, from uh, mainly from the instructors who are in the water teaching still every day today. Those are where some really great ideas are coming from all the time. So we do have one spot, one place in our custom software where anyone can submit those ideas and they come into a central place. And then we have um, committees set up for different areas. So for example, the curriculum committee determines what are the ideas we're going to work on now and what ideas we're going to put in the icebox for later. And then communicating that back to everyone in the system, both franchise partners and internal uh, partners and, and even communicating to customers. So, if, you know, we're listening, we want to hear your best ideas. You know, how can we be better? A lot of our current roadmap has come from customer suggestions um, on how to improve how we give feedback to customers, for example, of how their kids are progressing through lessons. That was very intentionally driven by um, going out and talking to customers about their experience, which I love doing. Uh, that came, you know, our, our current quarter's work is influenced by a conversation I had two years ago with a customer in one of our lobbies about specifically progress and what that meant to her as a mom. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we, we're always trying to make that intentional effort to go listen to customers as much as we can, uh, as well as use our own intuition of what we think they're going to want. Okay. Yeah, that's that's cool. So what about franchising? How did that idea come about that you would turn yourself into a franchise organization? And, you know, what, what do you feel are the success factors 
to become a successful franchise? Yeah, you know, we were almost 10 years old as a brand before we decided to go into franchising. And I think that really benefited us a lot because we spent 10 years refining the unit model and refining a lot of the processes that we were just talking about before we felt ready to scale this more broadly across an entire nationwide system of franchises. Being a franchisor has its own pretty long list of responsibilities that you don't really want to be adding to by still trying to develop a unit model. So if you're going to go into franchising, I would recommend spending some time prior to franchising of perfecting the the in-store experience, perfecting your core processes, and before you really feel ready to do that. And for us, it, it was a process, but it wasn't until about 10 years in that we really felt like we knew exactly what we were doing, how we wanted to do it, and what the plan was to go execute. And even today, we're still evolving and getting better. But uh, the fact that we gave ourselves time to develop the concept and develop the customer experience and, and keep investing in our software, our custom software that helps power Big Blue, Big Blue Swim School, I think that's been a big part of why we've had pretty uh, uh, rapid growth on the franchise front over the last two years since we started selling franchises. You know, definitely the fastest growing provider in our space. And when we bring in franchise candidates to learn about the business, they see that right away, I think. And, and they tell us that. But they, they can tell that this is a mature, more evolved uh, unit model and that there's still a ton of white space out there and a lot of great markets available because we're still relatively new in the franchising space. But the concept itself is not new. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of maturity behind it. So what's attractive in your franchise for a potential franchisee? Why do you, they choose? And I'm not just comparing you to other swim schools that may or may not be franchising. But if someone comes out of corporate America and they look for a franchise, why would they choose your model as opposed to other models? That's a great question. So, you know, the swim school concept is, uh, has been around for a long time. Yeah, I like to say the best business ideas always hide in plain sight, right? So swim lessons have been here for a long time and likely they always will be. And what the unit, has, the unit model has going for it is that swim lessons actually stand to benefit from the more macro trends happening in the economy, such as what Amazon is doing to traditional retail. A swim lesson would be very difficult to automate. You can't outsource it. You have to come and you have to do it. And you need to get your kids trained in, in water safety. You know, I have a three and a five-year-old. And for my wife and I, it's, it's just non-negotiable. Now, now, if the kids want to get into tennis or soccer, you know, we'll, we'll let them go do that and support them. But it's non-negotiable that they have to learn how to swim. And a lot of parents feel the same way. So there's a staying power to the concept that a lot of other franchise concepts uh, can't really you know, advertise uh, that people just intuitively understand right away as they it's learn about fad. the business. What's that? It's not a fad. Do yeah, it's not a fad. And because for so long people have been unaware or even afraid to build a pool and a business around it, there's still, like I said, a lot of white space in the market. So people see that and they see the staying power and they see, oh, wow, like this is just at the beginning phases of what's happening in experience retail and fits perfectly in 
with those macro trends as uh, commercial estate landlords realize that hard goods retailers are quickly being replaced by online providers and that they can't fill their malls and their, their centers with just restaurants. So what replaces that? Uh, experience retail, something like a, like a nail salon or a gym or a swim school is the perfect replacement for where you used to go buy shoes. Uh, and it's also very conveniently located. So if you think about families, you know, kids come with SUVs and minivans. And so we like to be very conveniently located with lots of uh, ample parking for families. And the, uh, the typical well-located strip mall gives us the perfect positioning to go do that. So we, we see a great run over the next 10 years of at least and into the future of being the, the, one of the first swim schools to provide an experience in line with the expectations of a millennial parent. Yeah, I love this idea of filling the mall with experiences. And I, I was a little bit, I've been, I've been a little bit concerned about uh, how malls become deserted. Uh, yeah. As retailers, they go out of business, especially during COVID, it's accelerated, but there's this online trend, which is a much longer term trend that is vacating malls from retail shops. But there you have the, the experiences can fill the, the void and then the mall it becomes actually more fun rather than less fun. I really like that vision. Uh, this is really cool. So uh, we are getting close to the time, but before uh, we wrap up, I really like to ask you something that you mentioned in our pre-interview, which really hit a chord with me. You said that you really feel that diversity is a lever in your business. Hmm. Uh, so what, what did you mean by that? And, and please speak to that concept a little bit. Oh, it means a couple different things to us. Uh, embracing our differences is a core value to our company. You know, we're very much a mission and values driven company. And like I said, that core value of embracing our differences, I believe has been a strength of ours from the very beginning. I think I, you know, I touched a little bit on the diversity of experience and uh, expertise that franchising offers us by, by leveraging the expertise and the different backgrounds of all of our different franchise partners but also to just the embracing a culture that accepts everyone for who they are, regardless of race, gender, identity, orientation. Uh, none of that matters at Big Blue Swim School. And the fact that we see beyond that and actually very much welcome it, I believe strengthens who we are as an organization, makes us smarter, makes us more nimble, makes us more aware of the trends happening in society. And at the end of the day is very much the right thing to do. Um, so it's been a core part of, of, of who I am as a person, but also who I hope Big Blue Swim School would become. And, and I'm proud to say today that I believe that it absolutely does embrace that, that core value. It's something we try to live up to more and more and get better at every day. You know, nothing's ever perfect, but um, it's, a, it's a huge part of who we are. And I credit a huge part of our success to being open to and embracing the things that make us different because the, it's, it's a really important part of life. Uh, can you tell me a couple of practical ways where it actually uh, improves business? So I understand the philosophy and I think it's very laudable that you, you, know, you want to embrace this concept and you, you want to show an example. I think that's, that's very cool. Is there a way for it actually to help business to get you more customers, to 
maybe attract uh, better teachers. I don't know what that could mean, but how do you see it uh, manifest in, in Big Blue? Absolutely. I, I think a lot of businesses right now are talking about culture because, um, as you know, hiring has been a, a challenge across all sectors in a lot of different businesses. Uh, so I think specifically in, in the area of hiring for us, the fact that we've built a culture that embraces the differences, as I said, uh, has been a huge net positive for us from a hiring standpoint, because it ultimately creates a culture that is in line with who our employees want to identify with and what they, how they identify as themselves and, and where they work to them is an extension of their own identity. And they want the places that they work to reflect their own personal values. And, um, and I, I can confidently with a straight face tell them that this is a place that embraces those values. And if you are a person who perhaps sees things differently, then it's very upfront from the very beginning. And I'll tell people, you, you simply will not meet with success here at Big Blue Swim School if this is not something you're comfortable with. So, you know, defending those values and, and aggressively going after um, making sure that we live by them every day uh, has been a big part of, I, I believe, building a culture that people want to be a part of. And at a time when people have more options, it's, it's very important to do that. I think culture organically arises out of how well a company follows those systems and processes we were just talking about, as well as how well they live their mission and their values every day. And out of that organically arises a culture. And if we can say that we're living by our values every day and we're following the processes that we put in place, it develops a very healthy culture that people want to become a part of and most importantly, remain a part of long-term. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with more, more with this. And the reason I'm so interested in this topic is because I come from a part of the world where diversity is kind of not, not a big topic. And in Central Eastern Europe, or it wasn't up to when I left nine years ago, and my awareness of it was, was very low. And, uh, you know, many years ago, I formed a peer group of business uh, leaders in, in my city where I live in Richmond. And one of the CEOs who was running a big insurance company, he, he put me aside and said, hey, Steve, this is a really great group, but, but have you thought about making it a little bit more diverse? And I didn't quite get what that meant, but he helped me understand it. And then over time, I managed to attract First women and then people of color, and the whole uh, experience became so much richer uh, because we had different people uh, from different backgrounds and, and races. Uh, we we had a much wider uh, perspectives on on issues. We could go get deeper. We had more vulnerability in, in that group. We could actually help uh, each other much more, uh, and it became more attractive as well to to people outside the group. So. So yeah. ever since I had this experience, I'm looking for, okay, let's let's just, so there is the moral part of it, uh, I get it, but let's sell also the, the benefits to a business, actually having that and being better at understanding the customer, attracting great people and, uh, and generally providing a better, and culture is, is an aspect that you highlighted particularly here. So thank you for that. So Chris, uh, we're coming to the end of our time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, so if our listeners would like to find out about the Big Blue Swim School, 
and there are now locations all over the country. Uh, where can they find that out? If they want to connect with you, where can they reach out and ask the questions from you directly, perhaps? Where are you? Yeah, you can check us out at bigblueswimschool.com. Uh, on there, you can read about some of the franchising opportunities we have. We're, we have a big goal of trying to open up 400 locations nationwide and trying to teach a third wow. of the kids in the U.S. how to swim and, and really change and revolutionize the swim lesson experience in this country. Uh, so there's a lot of available territories out there. You can read more about you know, the, the areas that we've targeted and that we plan to come and move into. So check us out at bigblueswimschool.com or shoot me an email at chris at bigblueswimschool.com. That's awesome. So thank you. Thank you for, for that. Thank you for coming on the show. And Chris, and to our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, go and subscribe on YouTube. really helps uh, us get the show out to more people and uh, have other people listen to these great interviews, uh, such as this one with Chris DeYoung. So thank you for listening. And thanks, Chris, for coming to the show. And uh, please stay tuned because next week we'll have another exciting entrepreneur come and share their uh, ideas about and experiences with management blueprints. Thank you.